I made a million when I was 20, no, 24, I think. That's crazy, no? Like when you think about it, there's a young, or for you probably normal now, but. No, no, it was so really young. nice. Of course, I celebrated a lot. I liked it as a milestone, but again, not building anything and not having any purpose, always felt something lacking. That's what drove me kind of to pivot more to this entrepreneurial side, right? Okay, because you also started to import helicopters. Yes. Hello and welcome to DeFire, the crypto storytelling podcast for your commute today. My name is Jonas and today on the show, João Zequin. João is a Brazilian entrepreneur and investor from Rio de Janeiro. He started an investment firm when he was only 19 years old. Then he made a small fortune as a bond trader in Miami and that led him to start buying helicopters in the US and fly them all the way down to Brazil. I wasn't even aware that you could do that. Nowadays, Schwann is investing in crypto companies with a connection to real life and currently raising a new crypto fund focused on Latin America with his latest company, Fuse Capital. I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Schwann, but before we start, a quick word from our sponsor. CryptoValley.jobs is a job board where engineers, designers, analysts, traders and community builders can find cool crypto jobs. Full disclosure, I run this job board. So if you're looking for a job or you want to advertise an open position, please go and visit CryptoValley.jobs. And while you're there, make sure to sign up on the email lists so you're always informed when new jobs are posted on the platform. That's CryptoValley.jobs. And now let's start the show. So maybe a, a little intro to my podcast. Is it a storytelling podcast? I've heard it. I heard some some episodes. Oh really? Yeah. What? Okay. No, but by, before I met you, like by by chance. Are you serious? Yeah. yeah. Because Deep I follow Deep all Fire. these DeFi podcasts. Mm -hmm. and some it was suggested to me at some point. Because I follow like all of them. And which, which one did you listen to? Man, I don't remember. But when when you told me the name, yeah. I I remember I, I've heard it. Because like okay. I always hear podcasts when I go home. I'm in traffic, mm -hmm. so I, I always try to look no for someone new way. to see, someone I like. So yeah. I, it's all the time I'm hearing something new. Okay. And I'm pretty sure I'm heard, I've heard of yours. Ye wow, well, that's crazy, because for me, I see download numbers, uh -huh. but there's like no connection to the listeners. Like sometimes I do a call to action, leave a review or something, uh -huh. but I have no idea who the people are. There's no way to, to like have any intelligence on who's, who's listening. No, it's like really ar arcane. It's just download numbers, and I have the feeling the download numbers are not really correct. I mean, that doesn't mean that if you have like thousand downloads, let's say, that is thousand people. Maybe it's more. Maybe it's less. Or I guess it's less. I just think when the format is perfect, I think listening is better than watching, mm -hmm. and recorded is much better than live. Well, João, uh, welcome to DeFire. Um, what we have to have is like a short intro with your name. Let's say like this, um, if you walk up to somebody at a party and it's kind of like a personal idol of you, but they don't know who, who you are, how do you introduce yourself that is kind of like, you know, that they are thinking, oh, this, this guy's this interesting. Cool. This, is, this guy is cool. I want to hang out with, with this guy. No, oh, yeah. My name is João. I've been involved in, in crypto and VC for the last decade. So started off investing in the, the sector when I moved back to Brazil in 2012 have doing this ever since. And I, I love it. I think it's the most interesting industry we have. And uh, like, I love what I do and I wouldn't change it. So 
my, a little bit of my work defines me, but uh, I would say something more personal, like uh, I, I love sports. I'm from Rio, so outdoor sports are like something that's kind of part of our culture. And I think our company, Fuse, has adopted this kind of culture of being outside and sportsy. So a little bit of a mix of a lot of work and some pleasure you know, by being here. We are here in your office at Leblanc, which is at the very end of Ipanema Beach. We actually can see the beach and people are kite surfing right now because it's windy. Yeah, we have a southwest wind, which is the wind for kite surfing here. So, Are you a kite surfer as well? Yeah, I, I do all kind of board sports, so that I like it. Like started off surfing, like yeah. snowboarding. Ah, nice. I was yesterday at Prainha. In Prainha? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Man. It's my favorite spot. To that's observe. the best place, man. Yeah. That's the best place. But yeah, Rio offers us this, right? If you do want to do any kind of outdoor sports, it's perfect for it. So if you want to climb, it's great for climbing, kite surfing. I've lived outside of Rio. I know what I'm missing when I'm not here. And I think I take full advantage of being here and, and taking advantage of the city. And plus now we have kind of this new incentive from the city mayor and the governors to create a crypto hub in the city, right? Rio kind of has a history that we were the capital of Brazil, so it used to be a very important city. And all of the financial market was here, everything happened in Rio. And this was slowly lost to Sao Paulo along the years. And Rio has been trying to find a footing. And there's been this new drive for this footing to be crypto. So you're going to see a lot of crypto-related stuff happening in the city, I think, in the ah, next Ah, interesting. Yeah, I've been to Ethereum Rio, and just the other day was another conference that I didn't, Rio I didn't blockchain, go. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think they already passed a law that you can pay taxes in crypto in real. There's this big push for the city to... To, to accept. Yeah. All right. And Sean, you said that you're into investing since a long time, and I've read and also heard other podcasts with you, and that you started an investment firm with 19. And I wonder, like, how do you even start an investment firm with 19? Can you give a little bit more a well, background? Uh, of my parents were in the investment industry. I used to, to play around that my toys were kind of an HP 12C calculator, which is like finance or calculator. And then uh, while in school, like I had always been interested for economics and finance. My school offered kind of these elective courses, which I always did. And when I went into college, I immediately started working for a brokerage firm. And at that brokerage firm, I met a lot of people and, and they wanted to set up kind of an investment fund. And I joined that group, and that's when we started the, it was called Portofino Asset Management. Is it still uh, active today? Yes. I left in 2009. Mm -hmm. I went to Miami. But they sold the brand, and it's now in Sao Paulo, I believe. Okay. Yeah. Are they super rich, your parents? That they're kind of like, you know, like, I want my son to understand about finances, so... Because it sounds like people will ask this question. Uh, yeah, I, I had a, a good living. Like my parents are not like super rich, but they're well off. My dad is retired. He's been retired since he was 50. So it's a, a good situation. And he was a banker? Or he used to be a broker. Like he used broker. to own a brokerage house. And yeah, so I had really good kind of, you know, ambience for this to develop in me. I think at some point they, they regret it because since I started working so early, I started making my own money. I didn't care about college and I ended up dropping out after my second year. I guess in Brazil, that was not so well seen to drop out of college as it probably would be in the US where there's almost like this yeah, romanticization no. of dropping out to do something bigger or better, right? Yeah, the previous generation doesn't see this very well. 
Mm-hmm. I, I didn't care. And I dropped out and went to live in Miami. So that's when I, I left Portofino and was hired by a Miami brokerage firm to do bond tradings. And what does that mean? What does a bond trader do on this day? You, you mean like the bonds of countries, right? Like uh, Bonds of countries and, and emerging market companies. Our companies as well, yeah. okay. So a bond trader, what he does, he finds someone who wants to buy a bond, finds someone who wants to sell, and creates some spread in the middle to make some money. Okay. So back in 2009, after the financial crisis, 2008, 2009, you had a huge lack of liquidity in the market. So spreads were huge and bond trading was still like, you didn't have a screen for bond prices. So it was completely what we call Balcão in Brazil. Balcão. Yeah, it's over the counter. Can over say the that. counter. So there's no technology. You don't buy it in a centralized market. You buy it from brokers. So, so you were on the phone basically. And Bloomberg. <laughs> And Bloomberg and kind of trying to figure out who could buy these amounts and what, what kind of amounts are we talking here? Like millions worth of, or tens yeah, of millions, hundreds millions, of millions. 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 And then you're trying to make like a quarter percent spread. Sometimes you make more, sometimes you make less, but you don't lose because you're not taking risk. And it's a business of, you know, a lot of negotiation because you're trying to push one guy to pay more. You're trying to push the seller to sell cheaper and you're making money in the middle. So it's an interesting business. And how is it like the, we all know these movies from the Wall Street where people are in these boiler rooms and it's like this high tension, high testosterone, people screaming around and it's like, it, was that a little bit how it felt to you at the time yeah. or how it was or was it more like a chill? It, it was yeah. chill. Like I'd say the, the kind of setting that you're in, like a brokerage house, like only guys. Uh-huh. So there's a lot of testosterone and you, you like making money and you like going over the client and it's like, it's, it's a good feeling. Mm-hmm. So you, you kind of build this kind of brotherhood and it's that, you know, locker room kind of situation. But in the end of the day, what frustrated me is that you're not building anything, right? You're just playing numbers. You're squeezing this guy one way, that guy another way, and there's nothing being built in the end of the day. You're just, you know, maybe building your bank account, but what are you creating and what's the purpose of what you're doing right and how much money can you make as a 23 year old at that time when i went to live in miami that month i remember i made like ninety-three thousand dollars for me in one month one month holy shit okay that's next level no it was and really that nice. was a good month for or that was a bad month no it was a good month it was a good month but there are like i remember a week in miami that we made like 1.5 million dollars in a week for you or for the, for the company? No, for the company. But you made already millions then in tw- with 23 years old. Can you say that? I made a million when I was 20, no, 24, I think. That's crazy, no? Like when you think about it, there is a young, or for you probably normal now, but. No, no, it, it was so really young. nice. Like I, I, of course I celebrated a lot, but yeah. I liked it as a milestone. But again, not building anything and not having any purpose, always felt something lacking. So I think that's what drove me kind of to pivot more to this entrepreneurial side, right? Okay. Because you also started to import helicopters. Yes. I mean, this also sounds so flamboyant. I mean, what the fuck? You were like, okay, I want to import helicopters to no, Brazil. No, it's a what great business. What was your thinking? Is it a great business? It's amazing. When I was in Miami, I, I always had this passion for flying in uh, aircraft and helicopters. And I took my license. You can fly helicopters? Yes. Okay. 
After work, I used to go to a flying school, and, and I loved it. So I wanted to do something with it to mix it with work. Mm -hmm. I saw this opportunity to take helicopters from the U.S., where they're abundant and super cheap, and fly them over to Brazil and sell them. So Wait, what, you can fly to Brazil with a helicopter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How far can a helicopter fly? No, you, go st you stop along the way, right? Okay, and, and you were, were delivering them yourself? No, I did a, I did a couple and I had a partner who did the rest. Oh, that's so cool. Like, how long does it take to fly a helicopter to Brazil? Been a long time. Like, usually they, these helicopters are more on the West Coast. I don't know why. But you take from the West Coast to the Miami like three days. And then you take like seven days to Brazil flying through the Caribbean. Yeah. And, and the Amazon, right, which is not nice. Oh, that's so crazy. And that's the best way to transport a helicopter. I would have thought just put them on a ship and... No, 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 that's the best way. The best it's fastest way. And, and cheapest. Yeah, super cheap. Yeah. Crazy. No, that's so cool. And you make a that's huge a margin, cool like, yeah. uh, because there's something interesting that in Brazil everything is very highly taxed. Mm -hmm. You've been here, you know, everything is expensive. Yeah, yeah. But helicopters are considered kind of a public service machine. They're not a luxury good. They're considered yeah. public service. So the taxes are lower, so you can make like 20% margin on a you know expensive machine. It's a good business. Like, and you would buy them new or used? Used, always. Always used. And then, who was the first person who bought the helicopter from you? Do you remember? Yeah. It was a businessman from Rio, I think. It was someone from Rio, yeah. Because we used to fly the helicopters here, then send them to, to a place called Ribeirão Preto. I don't know if, you're, if you know, it's like really interior of Sao Paulo. It would stay there until we sell it, then we'd fly it to wherever the, the owner was. But the interesting story is that this helicopter actually crashed after I sold it. No way. Like, but hopefully a long time after. Six afterwards. months after I sold it. But due to the pilot's error, mm -hmm. and no one got hurt and the insurance paid the guy. So it's a happy story, but it's interesting for the first machine we sold, actually like six months after it got destroyed. And that was probably the one you also flew in yourself. Yeah, no, I flew it a lot. I flew it a lot. It was the first of its kind in Brazil. Mm -hmm. Now when I'm thinking about it, it so I mean, it sounds like so amazing to fly a helicopter from the US to Brazil, but how fast can one fly? Like 200K, no, 150, 180? 5 knots, so yeah, 220. 220 is the max speed? Yeah. And then you're just like, for days, like going like that? Yeah, in theory, that's how it works, right? But no, we're young, so we play around a lot. Uh -huh. So we used to go like low, very low. <laughs> and okay. it was a lot of fun, man. Yeah. I can guarantee you it wasn't boring like at all. In the desert, we used to see a lot of horses, like wild horses, and we chased them. So it wasn't like we're just flying straight and, and yeah, yeah. going... Yeah. Wow, no. It sounds amazing. Cool. I'm impressed, to be honest. It's pretty cool. Like, uh, pretty proud of it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And maybe as a side note, Sao Paulo probably has uh, the highest density of helicopter flights or something. I'm just putting I think Sao Paulo is the biggest fleet of helicopters in the world currently. It used to be Tokyo, now it's Sao Paulo. Because you fly around the city, right? You go from building to building. Yeah. And I heard like in New York that they're not allowed to do that anymore. I don't think so. Because of some crashes yeah. and stuff, et cetera. I don't think, they can only go to that uh, helipad in Wall Street and that's it, I think. Yeah. To sum it up, you started somehow in finance, you got very successful in finance, but you felt you just need to build something. And then you came back to Rio and you started another finance firm, right? Yes, we started off what was, I think, the first private equity venture capital firm in Rio. I actually moved back to start that firm with some partners. 
and started kind of investing in tech, investing in, in entrepreneurs. So we did one really nice investment that was a company called ZDog. Yeah, I know ZDog. For people who don't know, it's a retail, and I guess they sell stuff for dogs or like pets. It's a lifestyle brand that sells dog collars. Ah, rich. only dog. Only dog, dog collars and dog accessories, but nothing. I think nowadays they sell some things for humans, but they yeah. focused only on dogs. Yeah. And they were the first lifestyle brand for pets. Like, that's how they positioned themselves. A lifestyle brand. How did this decision form in, in invest in these guys? Like, what made them stand out? Because it sounds like a silly idea, a lifestyle brand for pets. It sounds silly, but, but if you think about it, it's like pretty interesting because, first of all, amazing entrepreneurs. I've known these guys from school. Uh, they went to school with me, but then they, they worked for Abercrombie & Fitch, developing the marketing part. The finance guy used to work for BTG, which is one of the biggest banks down here. So really, like, well-arranged team. Huge market, man. Huge market. Like, in the U.S., at the time, it was, like, if I remember, $20 billion market for pet supplies. Brazil was also huge. And kind of this shift, uh, right, in, in, in kind of society where people are having less children, and consequently are feeling lonely, so they have more pets. And you didn't have a way like, to position as a consumer what lifestyle you were trying to indicate by what your pet was wearing. Everything was commoditized, you know, everything was similar. So they saw this kind of niche where pets are part of the family, people already spend a lot of, of dollars with pets, but they don't relate with the products that they are buying. The company's slogan was connecting dogs to people, connecting what I see in myself to my dog. So, it, man, it was a really nice play. The guys sold the company, I think, last year or the year before for a really nice multiple, and it was a very successful business, like a really good multiple. I think. Yeah. How, how much did it sell for? It was close to a billion. Reais. Cash, yeah. Okay. That's around nowadays 200 million, million yeah. US dollars. So close to that, and we invest like pre-seeds. And were you a big investor? We were the only investors, right? And I'm myself, but the fund was the only investor in the beginning. So they captured all of the upside onto the exit. Good. It's like a very successful story. And that fund as well, we invested in another company. I don't know if you've heard of them called 21212. Yeah, it's by a guy from New York who somehow likes Rio. And he came here. I was at his office once. You were in his office in, in Botafogo? Botafogo, yeah. When I worked with Swissnacks, we, we, we brought entrepreneurs there and they made like a... Because I was working with Swissnacks and they're kind of trying to connect Switzerland with Brazil and entrepreneurship, da-da-da. And we had an event there and I, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, we invested in them in, in 2012. They were the first digital accelerator in Brazil, right? So kind of copying the YC model. And it, it wasn't a very successful investment because they had a huge problem where they had this huge burn now for a very late return. They're starting to make some money now, I think, from the portfolio. But the interesting thing there was that I was the person allocated by the fund. I was the partner allocated to the business. So I would have weekly meetings with the 52 portfolio companies that they had at the time. And that's when I started to get involved in technology. That's when I started understanding the business model of these companies that were only tech investments. And uh, that's when I left finance because I, I understood that I wanted just to be involved with this side of the, of the investment part of the business. And I decided to leave the fund I set up and kind of had my own way 
to focus on tech, right? So that was in 2014. But when you say you left finance, you're still in finance, but you just finance tech stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. I'm still in finance. But when I say I exited finances that while in the fund, I still had my responsibilities to the liquid part. We had some credit funds, some, some things of that sort. And I said, I don't want anything to do with that. I want to focus just on tech investments. I don't care a lot about traditional finance anymore. That point kind of is a decisive point for me where I kind of just shift careers. I guess it's different in terms of like what you do on a daily basis. Like probably you look at the ideas, evaluate the ideas, dream about the future while the other traditional finance part is more kind of like spreadsheets or like, you know, like calculating and working more with certainties than uncertainties. I think there's a big difference that you're not just looking at numbers. So you're not in working on finance, like working on the debt for this company and how it's going to perform and trying to make a, a margin, trying to make some interest there. You're working more to build something out, right? You're working to, to get something off the ground and, and get something to be worth a, a lot and be used by a lot of people, right? So it kind of shifts, of course, my day-to-day -day tasks are totally different, but it shifts totally the mindset of how you think about what you're doing and what, what's the purpose of your doing, what, what are you building. So I, it's, re it's really interesting because I remember when we first invested in 2022 and like I got involved, it kind of clicked for me. Like I, I want to be involved with this. I, I don't want to be involved with that anymore. And, and it's, it's, it's a pretty different shift. Yeah. And even though they are in investing in digital models and you actually had a lot of success with the, with the non-digital model as well, like and you said they were not like that crazy successful or, or that investment wasn't the most successful one. What was kind of like capturing your, your, your interest with the digital economy, so to say? The scale, I think. So if you, if you want to have something that's going to impact millions of people, the fastest way to that is the distribution that you know, technology enables you and the internet enables you. So I think that's very appealing for, for when you you start having these creative ideas and start dealing with creative people that you know have the potential to create amazing products and scale very fast. Yeah. And that's totally different than what I was used to. But again, like I think this traditional finance baggage you know, that I carried for having this experience was super important to look like, at things objectively, right? I think a lot of people in, in this industry, venture capital, they are still very romantic. They think about the best case and they don't think about how you're going to get there, what if the numbers make sense. So I think traditional finance gave me that, that, you know, in, in the math needs to make sense. And you can get there, but it's going to require realistic thinking, you know, now. So when we started off doing venture capital in 2012, I think there were three funds in Brazil that did this seriously and everyone copied the California Silicon Valley model. But man, like, how many funds do you have in California? It's an industry that's been, you know, in development since the 70s, I think. Yeah. So the model in Brazil needs to be different. It can't be the same model. Like, you can't have a business here that's going to burn cash for five years and then something's going to happen that's going to work out because you didn't have the full funding ladder in place, especially in 2012. So like a deal like Figma wouldn't work out in Brazil. Can you, can you explain that term, the funding ladder? What, what does that mean? You can define it more broadly as like, you have early stage kind of investing. So seed, pre-seed, series A maybe. Then you have mid-stage 
companies that are already scaling, that have a customer base, have unit economics developed, and then you have a stage where you know it's just growth. And what happened uh, in, if, is if you don't have, for example, the middle stage, the companies can't bridge the gap because there's no capital. Mm -hmm. It starts to work, but they're burning more capital than they need, and then you need somebody who's jumping in and says, I'm pushing you to the next level where you finally start to make money. Yeah, either you, come, you have a player come into this, this, the lacking stage, which covers it and you're solved, or these companies, they need to be more you know, profitable, they need to generate cash so that they can you know, carry on to the growth stage where you have private equity investors and, and whatnot to, to take the company forward. So the way we invest, I think still we do this, is you know, let's invest in companies that have realistic business models, that have positive unit economics, and then can weather you know, bad times like now where things are you know, not going very well, liquidity dries up and companies need to weather the storm to make it to a brighter day. So I think that's when I talk about funding ladder. I think it's the VC game, right? You, you need to grow the company and grow the stages, and, and but things happen along the way and the rug gets pulled. I think a lot of people from outside probably heard about one company that is very famous, New Bank. I'm not, I'm not sure if you've been involved there, but it, like even in Switzerland, sometimes you, you read about the IPO of New Bank. And it, for me, it seems like a typical startup, right? Like, probably doesn't make any money for a long time, probably still doesn't, but it, almost as it would work somehow it feels. But Every story after it is successful, the st a story gets created for the, the genesis, right? I think this is, it happens a lot with large companies and things that work out. But I think Nubank, they have a lot of merit for what they did. They saw this huge gap in the market where there is a lot of unbanked and they can't be banked because they don't have any credit, they don't have any score. They said, let's service these people. But what happens in Nubank is that it's a well-funded company since the beginning. So David Velez was a partner at Sequoia, and he secured funding for that company at a seed stage with Sequoia and in outside capital. So the company had enough runway to make this aggressive growth play that they did. It was very successful, but that it's a totally different story. They were a totally different beast. They were, they were almost like an American company that's operating a Brazilian strategy. Okay, so this is kind of an outlier. And when you started, there were three funds, which means is that good for you or is that bad for you? Because I can see it play out as good because you're the, one of the only kind of places to go for money and that gives you a lot of leverage and a lot of you know, like power, so to say. But on the other hand, if there's not this big ecosystem, it's probably harder to find afterwards, as you said, this growth ladder, other, other people who, who pick up your, the bill, so to yeah, say, because yeah. now you have- You need to carry it all the way. Yeah, you have to go all the way and you probably don't want to or can't finance it all the way. Was it more difficult or was it kind of like, hey, this is like- I think it's more blue difficult. Ocean. More difficult. Yeah, yeah, because it's like raising capital is more difficult because people are not used to the thesis and they don't know what it is. They need to be educated and and they're not going to deploy a lot of capital because the first time they do it. So that part of the business is super difficult. You have a lack of entrepreneurs because since there's no capital, no one wants to build a business. So there's less you know raw material for you to work with. But I think that's the time to create a brand, invest, and if you believe the market is going to grow that's the time where you need to start off, right? So 
At this time, when I, when I left the fund, my first investment when I was in my own was a company called Loggy. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the companies that grew off to be one of the, the unicorns uh, in Brazil. And the story there is interesting because I invested in the company. I was the first check and it helped them raise the first round, was on the board. Mm -hmm. And I took this company to all of the, the three or four funds that were available at the time and no one wanted to invest. No one wanted okay. to get close to the company. And why? And Lockheed is doing, how, how would you say, like they, they, they're driving around here in the city with their backpacks. They don't bring food. What do they bring? They bring stuff. all kinds of stuff. They do delivery for, for you know, e-commerce. They, they deliver if you need to send like a mail to someone. They, they do all kinds of delivery. They do food as well, but I don't think it's it, their... It's more the last mile, right? Last it's, mile. it's not like a DHL. No, it's like... I want to send something to somebody in the city, then I get lucky. Or, exactly. Or, okay. I forgot my keys at home. I can ask someone to send me keys. It's like a easy way to do less mile. Mm -hmm. So, so this company, no one wanted anything to do with it. Yeah. Once it like grew, and you know it was already like ha had established, then everyone came in. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not like you have to foot the bill the whole way. It's maybe you just need to you know prove this company is worth something for these guys at that time. And then they would come in and, and, you know. And now maybe going towards crypto, right? We, ha we have to have some crypto in there. Although I'm also super interested in the, uh, the non-crypto stuff because we have much more touch points in, in our daily lives. Even me as a crypto kind of enthusiast in my daily life, and nowadays I don't, I don't really need it that much. How do you see that gap? And you have really this very uh, economical lens you look at the business does it make sense to acquire you know like costs of acquiring customers and kind of like unit economics and all this stuff that is really footed in the real economy and now somehow we are entering this web3 world and let's be honest a lot of it is speculation or was and until today a lot of critics say there is no real use case for it right like that the blockchain is just a a very expensive database. We, we are now having Bitcoin and all these things for 10 years, but we haven't found yet the use case for it, etc. How, how did you enter this space and how do you, do you see it? How, how do you feel about it? I entered this space back when I was in, involved with 2022. We had one entrepreneur that you know, one day approached me and said, look, you need to buy this. You need to buy Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Like, what the F is Bitcoin? Like, I, no, no. Don't ask, just buy some. And this was 2012. So I, I bought a little bit, like, I don't know how much. I bought it and then I forgot about it, mm -hmm. right? And maybe looked at some news and something, but didn't even remember I had it. And then in 2014, we had the big, you know, ICO, like, craze. And that's when, you know, I, I was aware that I had some, I sold some. And I, I started more understanding what, what were the possibilities there and how this started to shift, you know, the, the paradigms that we have in, in tech. And uh, I think from 2014 up to, to Fuse, like, I, I didn't have kind of a clear idea of what this would become because I didn't have like a, a close touch point or a close use for it, right? During that time, I was like building some companies, investing in other companies, and I kind of left it to the side. 
But when we set up Fuse, which is our current investment vehicle, we started innovating a lot on the on the investment side of the business. So we used to do like, we still do like equity investments. So we do depth investments. We mix them together to get something different. But we took a look at our business and we understood that you know the investment side was really cool and really new things are happening there. But on the investor side, the LP side. Everything was kind of old and traditional. And that's when we kind of looked back at crypto and said, hey, I think there, we can use some of these new instruments to create some innovation in how we, lead, we deal with LPs and how we raise capital, right? So I, I think that was a big shift, not only for me, but for, for the company that we used to do a lot of generalistic kind of investments. So we invest in AI, we invest in social commerce, we invest in fintech. And when we actually issued the tokens for the fund shares, so we did an, an actual STO. And sorry, STO stands for security, security token offering. Security token offering. But that, that was for a fund that was not crypto only. That was for your general general fund. Fund, okay. Yeah. And there was a demand for it, or was it more? I want to experiment with this technology. It was an experiment. It yeah. took us one year. One full year to do it. It wasn't simple because it was legal stuff. Yeah, exactly. Legal stuff, advisors go this way, that way, a lot of service providers in the middle. But all of that process made us understand how crypto was going to change our business and how crypto was going to change all businesses in the world. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think what you said, like, there's no real use case for it. Like, only when we dove into it and used it for ourselves for a benefit, one of the tools that were developed through crypto, that we understood the full scope of it and, 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 and that kind of changed us. Like we started from that point on, we only started doing crypto investments. Only? Yeah, I don't like to say only for this fund that we still have some dry powder, but I can say that the future funds are gonna be crypto driven funds. Interesting. And do you feel when you came back from the US to Brazil, you and you started to invest in Brazil. You must have felt very bullish about Brazil, obviously, because you wanted to invest locally. And now the Web3 world is, it's so hard to even put it down. Where does it live? It's decentralized, it's a little bit everywhere. Do you look at it through that lens as well? Like it's all over the globe or do you make like a, a Latin American play with crypto? Yeah, first like we never got stuck investing only in Brazil. Like half of our portfolio companies are Brazilian companies. Half of our portfolio companies are outside Brazil. It's exactly like a 50% split. Latin America has a market and a demographics and financial conditions and you know everything that's very suitable to develop strategies here. You have the south of the country, which is totally different from the southeast, which is totally different from the north, and you have different regions. So if you're trying to develop a product that reaches all audiences, Brazil is a very good market for MVP. Very good market for MVP. So what we we are currently focusing on and we've been doing this since the beginning is we'll focus in companies anywhere in the world we'll invest in companies anywhere in the world as long as they have some type of connection to latam or brazil where we can be hands-on and help them so i think it's a main part of our thesis is uh, that we need to add some value to the entrepreneur i know every fund is going to say this but we actually take it very seriously and if we find out that we don't add any value, we will end up not investing because we like to be relevant to the entrepreneur. And the best way to be relevant to entrepreneur 
is to giving him more revenue, giving him more connections, you know, and we can do that in Brazil, right? So when we look at crypto, it's the same thesis because we actually adopted a, a thesis in crypto where we only invest in things that connect the crypto world and crypto tools and, you know, technology that's developed in crypto to real world kind of applications. That's the only place that we'll, we'll invest. Okay. So this connection enables us to be hands-on and, you know, use our network here in Brazil with local companies and, and even with the, the logistics and legal aspects of the business to help these companies scale and grow in Brazil. Okay. So, so you are one of the accelerators for real life usage because you want to connect with real companies who will use the technology. Do you have an example? Like, Yeah, there's a, our favorite example. There's a company called Credix. It's some Belgium guys. We met them through an advisor. And these guys, we met them in October last year. And they had an idea to create a, a DeFi protocol where you could deposit USDC and they would create a mechanism to lend this USDC into emerging markets fintechs, right? So it seems simple, but there's a lot of pipes that need to go along the way and a lot of legal kind of, of things that need to happen. But this was perfect for us because, you know, a, a team that's in Europe understands that there is access to cheaper capital abroad in developed countries and wants to access one of the markets there that we are involved in, Brazil. And they need kind of the support from a, a local investor to, to make things happen. So this company started off, I think they started off building in October. In January, they had the product, grew a lot and just closed the Series A. So it's a really successful business, even at its early stage. And it kind of shows like the type of partner that we would like to be to these types of companies, right? Can you walk me quickly through that I, that I, I tried to understand how they do it, what they do. So I have USDC, which is a stable coin. What, what do I do with it and what do I get in return? Yeah, so if you are like a retail investor, so you'll access their liquidity pool. Uh, it's a permissioned liquidity pool, so you have to KYC. You'll just deposit your, your USDC and this kind of more senior liquidity pool will access kind of a, a split of all the, all the deals that they have originated in the end. So the deposit to SEC and you'll start receiving income from real world, world loans that they made. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Once you don't want it anymore, you'll just liquidate your position and be on your way. But th that USDC then will be used by local fintechs. Yes. To to do what exactly? So they'll they'll get the, the USDC. They'll convert it to to local currency stables. Mm -hmm. So in the case of Brazil, it's BRZ, and they'll lend this BRZ to fintechs. So there's a bunch of, of fintechs, but there's one called A55, which is also a portfolio company of mine, and these guys do MRR loans. Right. Uh, MR. MRR loans. So monthly recovery revenue loans. Ah, uh, so it, okay, like a SaaS company has monthly recurring revenue for exactly. They, they'll buy the revenue of the company up front. So okay. Okay. Yeah. So they'll lend the, the BRZ to A55. Mm -hmm. A55 will lend to their companies. Mm -hmm. In parallel, they'll securitize like the the credit notes and mm -hmm. pass the credit note to the blockchain. 
it's, it's complex. Yeah, it's getting complicated, yeah. But in the end of the day, A55 lends the money to their clients, gets paid back. They pay back the interest to, to credits in Brazil, in BRZ. They convert the BRZ to, to SDC and pay back your loan or yeah. your interest, right? Okay, and, and oh, that's really interesting. So you have local companies that are already like so you know, like already on the blockchain and use kind of like, uh, I, I wasn't even aware that there's a, a local stable coin, for instance. There DRC. is, there is. It's uh, issued by a friend of ours, the Transfero. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't know. You're in Rio. You need to meet them. And they, and they use that for, let's say, more traditional companies who have a monthly recurring revenue, or is it also digital companies who are already on the blockchain? Or would that then be the, the final, let's say the last mile, the last user of the of the loan what, what kind of business can you make an example it's usually digital businesses but like web 2 so um, SaaS business are, are usual some ag tech companies so usually companies with uh, in the a55 case recurring uh, revenue they have a, another client so credits has another client which is a company that does auto financing loans so for, for car financing okay. and then they have another one that does student loans so yeah. they start diversifying their portfolios within fintech. And then I think the idea is to open different liquidity pools for other types of business. So if you're going to finance ag tech, right, yeah. there can be a pool for that. So in, in a way, the Web3 is going a little bit back to your roots as well, because it is the new finance, right? It's a new, the innovation of finance is the first thing right now for me that I see actually happening, like the DeFi stuff. Yeah. And then we have the NFTs, which is almost a different world, right? I'm, I'm not sure if you want to talk about that no, as yeah. well. <laughs> I think the first use case is yeah. obvious for technology is always finance. Because it's a huge market. It's already a, a lot, you know, like digitized. So you don't need to have any effort there. So, so this is the most obvious place to start and where Web3 started. But we see a lot of potential, like in bringing kind of Web3 to real life uses, right? Outside finance. I think okay. finance is, is on its way, right, already. We find a lot of potential in NFTs, especially for, you know, connecting this, for example, to the gig economy. So the example we always give, like there's a Uber driver, guys there driving, has his ratings, right? Doing a good job. Then he decides to go to Lyft. He needs to start over from zero. So what if you have NFTs that are personally owned, like? that can hold that rating, hold his history wherever he is and start having interconnectivity of, of these platforms. For your Airbnb, if, if you want to change platforms, that's your, your data, right? So, and applying that to, to, to a lot of different use cases and then you can come back to finance and you can do like credit scores and, and rating of, of wallets. So I think that's something that we were looking into, having this technology roll out from finance to being spread out through all your life, right? And something else that, that we, we try to look at is like, we understand that the, the blockchain and the infrastructure is kind of the back end, right? It's the data structure of, of applications. And I think it's not really well defined what's going to be the front end. And it's probably a, a wallet, right? And currently everyone uses MetaMask, which is not a very good experience. Especially if, if you think about it, it can't be a good experience because you deal with NFTs, you deal with DeFi, you deal with your virtual bank account, you deal with a lot of stuff. So it needs to be a generalistic approach and in, 
in that way it needs to be a poor experience for everyone but it for everything but it, it works right so we think that a lot of wallets with specific use cases are going to be developed a wallet for gaming a wallet for your nft collections and in the end of the day that's just a front end because it's still accessing your information in the blockchain in, in the back end so these types of opportunities like are, are what we look for and, and what we like to search for yeah, well, one question I had is, you only invest in companies or do you also hold and buy, you know, like cryptocurrencies, Ether, Bitcoin, whatever? So something that we do internally with proprietary money is we have an investment wallet where we take positions in DeFi and NFTs and a bunch of different strategies. And we use this to develop intelligence for how we invest the capital in the, in the companies or in the, the VC fund, right? So if we didn't do this, we wouldn't understand the needs, we wouldn't understand the market. So we, we actually take a really deep dive on the technical side and, and develop our own tools that connect to the blockchain, extract data, understand the infrastructure, understand how things work and the pieces that are lacking that need to be the companies that are going to be developed in the future and, and the areas that we want to be involved in. So that's something that's a little bit different where we get involved in the, the liquid side of the business, but just internally in proprietary capital. Okay. But now you're also um, raising money again for, for a crypto uh, Latin America fund. Yes, we just started off raising fund two from Fuse. So this is gonna be a fund 100% dedicated to invest in crypto business again with the same kind of, of strategy of investing in businesses that you know develop crypto tools to assess real world problems and the interesting thing is that as we talked previously this is going to be the first fund in brazil fully dedicated to crypto right so when you mentioned like when i started off in vc 2012 if uh, how was the, the funding ladder how was involved so i feel that for crypto we are exactly at that stage now in, especially in Brazil. So we don't have any investors. People do it uh, kind of as side deals, but they're still biased to the deals that they have more understanding about. So we want to position Fuse to be the house, you know, for crypto entrepreneurs in Brazil and Latam. Okay. And, and, and give me an idea, like how, how much, it, when you raise a fund, it, do you cap it at some point? Or is it, do you have a goal, how much you need? until it's successful or you just have a, 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 a you know like a i don't know a fundraising period and then you close it and then it's usually like five years or when, when you give back the money yeah uh, this how is does going that to work? be so traditionally it's a 10-year vehicle for vc but this vehicle the way we set up enables it to be a five-year vehicle we have a target of 50 million dollars 15 50 50 million yeah 50 and yeah, we're going to drive to their target. So uh, the idea is that we do a first closing still this year. And then next year we, we raise the remaining amount. But we have some rush to it because we feel the market is at a really nice point to start entering these companies. Again, there's a lack of liquidity. There's no investors. We have a lot of pipeline. So just an example, last year we received about 1,200 companies that we analyzed. Oh, wow. 1,200. 75% of that were crypto companies. Okay. So this year we even look at having more companies. So there's, again, a lot of raw material for us to develop, you know, like great investments and, and partner up with great entrepreneurs. 
How, how many did you say? 12,000? 12, no, no 1,200. 1,200. 1,200. 1,200. So you see every day four to five companies. Yeah. How do you screen so many companies? Who, and who does that? Does that? Is it one guy who is dedicated to it or everybody? Or Yeah, no, we, we have five people dedicated to, to investments because not all, all of them come through an organized source. Uh, so yeah. it was my dream that everything would come through a type form and everything would be organized. Mm -hmm. But no, things come by email, things come by WhatsApp, things come by LinkedIn. So we developed a software that consolidates everything into a Notion database. Yeah. And then we have kind of a quantitative filter. So the stage the company is in, if it's not the stage that we invest, we pass. The cap table is usually a big problem. We try to get that out of the way as soon as possible. So a lot of quantitative kind of filters. And then this goes into a process where we discuss internally the companies that we want to get involved in. And then a partner needs to buy it and take it forward. And there's two partners. There's three partners involved in, in investing, one partner involved in just operations. You are seeing pitches all day long, and as an entrepreneur, you probably only do that so many times in your life. Now, probably there's more entrepreneurs listening than investors, I don't know, but give them a tip, how can they stand out? What do you wish entrepreneurs would do better when they apply for money? You, you must see this all the time. It's almost like a hot girl on Tinder that sees all the guys writing, hey, 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 hey. You are that hot girl on Tinder that sees, hey, hey. What is somebody that makes you stand out? You know, like give this information to the, to the other side. I think there's just one tip. Like, so with the background that we see this every day, like a hundred times, we see it a lot. I think people need to be authentic. Like we see a lot of entrepreneurs trying to be something that they're not and trying to push a story that's not authentic. And, and you know, you can sense that immediately. You feel it. Like when the guy like knows the problem, he relates to the story, he has some passion about it, you know, and of course that needs to be accompanied by you know, a plan that makes sense. Be realistic. Don't, you know, over ask. That happens a lot. But I think the main point is the person is, is saying the truth and is authentic, we can, you can feel it, right? Mm -hmm. So those are the guys that we usually, you know, have take longer time to analyze, spend more time with, because they're people that, you know, are worth spending your time with. But that's almost saying like, yeah, you, let's go back to this analogy of the hot girl Tinder. <laughs> yeah. First, you have to get the time to, to, to even figure out if they're authentic, right? Probably because you probably don't talk to them right away. You only get like a, I don't know what you get. You get an email, you get an introduction, you get a PDF. How do you know from a PDF if he's authentic? You know? All of the above. <laughs> yeah. Like how no, like, again, we usually, if it passes our quantitative filter, so it's something that we would invest, Right, and would it, like it fits kind of these mandates for the fund. And, and what are the filters? Like it needs to be seed, pre-seed. The, the entrepreneurs need to have more than 80% of the, the equity in the business. It needs to be a market that we understand and can help the entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. It needs to be involved with Brazil. It doesn't need to be located in Brazil, but it has some, to have some fit with what we do in Brazil. So there are kind of these, you know, check the boxes, which we, we do. And then if it gets to this stage, we always have a talk with entrepreneurs. Always, always. 
So in that talk, I'm telling you, man, like people criticize, you know, SoftBank for Son doing investments in 15 minutes. But in 15 minutes, you know, if the person is knows what he's saying, he's authentic and and really like trying to, to build something. So it's because we, we hear it a lot, a lot. So every day, you know, there is there is a pitch uh, every day. There's four or five pitches if you divide it by the team. So you can sense it out really quick. And then if we sense that in the entrepreneur and it's already something that fits what we're looking for, then we start the process and then really drilling down to the business and then it's a long process. Mm -hmm. So we take like three months to invest. Mm -hmm. Okay. Which is also a dedication from the, the fundraiser, right? They have, to, they have to keep working with you for three months, show all the numbers. Uh, you know, it's a long-term relationship you have with these guys and our proposal is that we actually propose to be a partner. We propose to, if they want to, we can be involved in the company. We will dedicate time to that. So it takes time to understand how the relationship is going to be. You don't understand this in one week. And I think in the end of the day, we take a long time. But during that time, we always look at aggregating value to the business. So. We'll intrude clients, we'll sit in meetings, we'll look over financials and give feedback. So it's not a wasted time for the, for the company, right? And now as, as we are in a bear market and liquidity and money is drying up, it's going to be harder for them to get, for the entrepreneurs to get money, right? I, I, would, I, I think, although there have been many funds already raised that still has the money to, do you start to kind of like squeeze them a little bit more? get a little bit better deal out for you? You know, like, it's, it's not, I think we never squeeze the entrepreneur. Because like it's, there are parameters, right? Like, first of all, either this is going to go, you know, really well, or it's going to be worth nothing. So it doesn't matter, the more percentage you have of nothing is still worth nothing, right? So if you're trying to squeeze the guy in the beginning, you're going to have a really bad cap table and then you're gonna, you know, mess up his future rounds. I think some experience in the sector lets you take kind of these decisions where, you know, there are parameters where you need to follow, and we stick to them. So if the guy comes here, you know, asking for you know, 10 million dollars, and he has zero in revenue and is looking for a hundred million dollar valuation, of course, it doesn't make any sense for us. But if he's inside, inside the, you know the normal realm of things, you know, it's kind of uh, uh, standardized. What, what is the ticket size that you do? Like how much do you invest usually in a pre-seed seed? Uh, we've done like a hundred thousand. We've done like a million. So that's our, where we like to stay. So I think we like to maintain that. I don't think we're going to grow it a lot. Cool. And, and if somebody, and you're looking for people who invest in this fund, what kind of people are you talking about? Is it, is it, could it be a high network of individuals or would it be more like other funds, like in, institutional investors that, that you're trying to raise these, this money from? Yeah, we usually, like for every fund, we look for LPs that are involved in the sector. So like high net worth individuals that are from, you know, like crypto made millionaires or crypto made people that want to have more exposure to the sector or have no exposure to LATAM and, and would want some. Those are the kind of people that, that we like because these guys have huge relationships that we can, you know, 
use our filters to, to tap into those relationships mm -hmm. and bring businesses over. But our, our usual investors are like family offices, some institutional investors. That's where we, you know, that's our, our network is there and that's where we play at. Okay. And if somebody wants to get in touch with you, be it for the fund or, you know, pitch an idea, what is the, the best way? You said before Typeform would be the ideal situation no, for investors. For organizing. <laughs> no, I like email, Twitter. I'm, I'm really bad with LinkedIn. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of lazy with it. But uh, Twitter, email, and WhatsApp. That's right. what we do. Great. I'll link to those in... Have your Twitter. I'm not sure about WhatsApp, but I can link to all this stuff, whatever you feel comfortable with. Let's do it. Thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you, man. It was great. Very, very nice talk, man. Really yeah, pleasurable. Yeah, same, same. Thanks. If you are still listening, chances are that you liked this episode. DeFi is not just me, it's also you, the listener. And each day, there are more listeners joining and together we can spread the word about DeFi by giving it five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Send this episode to a friend who might be interested. Check out the website, visit defire.money and click on subscribe to get the new episodes and in the future also blog posts directly into your inbox. Also make sure to follow me on Twitter at defiremoney. All of this helps so we can continue to produce more episodes more frequently and get the most interesting guests that you deserve. Good night and see you soon.